Hello. So as you know, a couple of months ago, an old friend from primary school days approached me with a thought. She's now a school teacher herself, and her class was, for some reason, looking at travel writing. So she asked me if I'd be willing to answer a few questions that her class could put to me to help them in their lessons. I, of course, agreed. So they all went away and researched me. And then she came back to me about a week later with a list of questions that her class were curious about regarding my travels, why I started travelling and writing, and about interesting things that had happened to me along the way. I wasn't sure the best way of answering them, whether that be in a specific writing to them, or a blog post, or something else. But then my VA had an idea. She'd been looking at the idea of Twitter spaces for a while. Now, these are akin to audio discussion panels, like, you know, with a host and with speakers, broadcast live on Twitter, and people can listen into them and join in if the host allows. Because I have a podcast anyway, she thought that doing something audio-wise would be the most comfortable way of answering the questions, and we could check out this new social media while we do. Two birds, one stone, that kind of thing. Anyway, it went really well, it felt pretty natural, and my friend was more than happy with the recording we made from it. But off the back of it, me and my VA wondered if there would be, you know, mileage in doing it on a regular basis about other topics that felt natural to talk about. And the time of recording this introduction, we're preparing our fourth. Twitter spaces themselves remain available to listen to for 28 days before being lost to the ether, but there are ways of home recording them. And one of the thoughts I had was, well, my podcast is fortnightly, so is there any mileage in uploading previous Twitter spaces as, shall we say, extra podcast episodes to fill in the gaps, effectively making a weekly podcast for not very much extra work. My VA said there was no harm in extra content. So here we go. This then is the recording of the first Twitter space we did, answering the questions from my friend's school class. When editing it, I noticed at times the quality of the recording dips slightly in a couple of places when I speak, but hopefully it won't affect your listening pleasure. Oh, and be aware too that the original Spaces conversation took place over a mobile phone rather than through the computer. Hope you enjoy. Hello. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure, a fortnightly series looking at unfamiliar places around the world and aspects of travelling you may never have thought of. I'm your host, the Barefoot Backpacker, a middle-aged Brit with a passion for offbeat travel, history, culture and the whys behind travel itself. So join with me as we venture Beyond the Brochure. morning good morning good afternoon even oh yes good afternoon sorry it feels like a morning here <laughs> yes it's it's a very bright and beautiful day here oh that's nice the um, sun is out the sun is shining everything is glorious and dry oh god that's something's bound to go wrong any minute now then <laughs> right so i think we should probably start by saying who we are and stuff um, yes, I shall leave that to you. You're the you're you're in charge of this. Okay, so my name's Victoria Pearson, but you can call me V. And today I am just here to ask some questions that have been sent in by St Mary's School in Astley. 
just so it doesn't sound like the barefoot backpacker is talking to themselves. Um, the barefoot backpacker travels to places so that you don't have to, with very little luggage and rarely any shoes. That's about the space of it, yes. <laughs> I realised that I didn't check that introduction with you, but I thought it was quite accurate. It's very accurate. It's basically what I've written on all of my um, media kit and my things like that. So, yes. yes. Excellent. Um, so, as I just said, um, we were sent in some questions from St. Mary's School in Astley. And um, they've asked some very interesting questions of you. But obviously, with a younger audience, we have to be careful not to swear. And of course. And stop swinging on your seat. I know you are. <laughs> Every class has somebody swinging on the seat. They're always near the back of the class and they've been told a million times, stop swinging on your seat. <laughs> I wouldn't know. I, I wasn't that child. Oh, I'm very surprised by that, to be honest. <laughs> I was the child that kept um, arguing with the teacher. Oh, that really doesn't surprise me. At the age of 10 and 11, I thought I was the greatest thing known to the universe. Everybody does. Everybody does. And yeah. some of you possibly are. Who knows? I'm going to be right. <laughs> okay, so should we dive straight in with the questions then? Because there are quite a few and we don't want to take up the whole of their lesson time um, with our oh, wittering. Fair enough. Okay, so um, we'll kick off with the first one, but it kind of ties in to another. So um, the first question is, what inspired you to become a travel writer? Um, but that kind of feeds into when did you start travel writing and what was the first place that you wrote about? I've always been interested in writing. So when I was at primary school, you know, sort of like seven to 11 age, uh, creative writing and just writing in general was my favorite subject. So I've always had that writing bent to me. And at the same time, when I was that young, I also had this fascination with maps and map books uh, so, and encyclopedias. So I used to just, just idly sit there for hours on end, just looking at maps, looking at places, around the world that I knew nothing about and would probably never visit, but just the idea of them being there just fascinated me. So as I've grown older, it just made sense that the two combined basically. So I ended up writing about places and traveling to places and writing about the trips that I've taken. The first one I remember writing was an interrail trip back in 2000 that I took with my then girlfriend. We went around Spain, Portugal and Morocco, and it was more of a travel diary than a what you might call travel writing these days, in the sense that it was a lot around, well, today we went to this place, we had this much fun, then we took a train to here, and then we played Scrabble on the train and things like that. Um, very much like blogging used to be. So, so More based on your feelings around the trip than what you might have actually seen while you were there. Yeah, I mean, obviously, some of what I wrote was the places that we went to, but it certainly wasn't as in-depth as the stuff that people are writing now. And it certainly wasn't, uh, you know, detailed or particularly informative. It was very much, this is what we did. This is how we felt. And there was a lot of stuff that isn't terribly useful for other people to know about. But we were just right. Well, I was just writing based on what we did. And it just made sense at the time so that when I got old, I could look back and read it and go, oh, I had a great time in Morocco and things like that. And is it was that an analogue type of diary or is that online somewhere? It was actually online. And one of the reasons for putting it online was so that, uh, and I, this was true of a lot of my early diaries, uh, a lot of 
reason why it was online was so that my mother knew I wasn't dead. Because <laughs> my mother has this, and still does to an extent, um, has this view about me and my personality. And she worries about me. And she worries that I'm going to go to some far off country and, you know, come a cropper, shall we say. Uh, partly because of my own ineptitude or my own um, distrust of authority figures. So I have but to... But that has to partly be because you don't tend to stick to the tourist trails when you travel. You're not one to go for an all-inclusive two weeks sitting by a pool somewhere. Uh, oh, no, absolutely not. Um, it's just also that my mother still thinks it's 1983 and <laughs> has the view that the world is as it was then, which means that some of the places that I'm going to um, since my, I started traveling are places that when she was younger, weren't exactly safe. So she was very worried about me going to Cambodia, despite the fact that Cambodia has been, you know, perfectly valid for a couple of decades now. Um, but she just remembers what it was like when she was younger. And so in her head, it's still a, a dangerous place to visit. I'd imagine that for a lot of people that don't do much traveling, there are a fair few places that are like that in their head where actually they're very safe to visit now because they weren't when they were younger. They find it difficult to imagine that you might want to visit there. Um, yeah. But that is a big thing for you, isn't it? Visiting places that people don't usually go to as tourists. I find my, my belief is that everywhere is interesting because everywhere there are people, everywhere people live, everywhere people work. So there is a reason for everywhere to exist. And one of the things I like to do is find out what that reason is. So I travel for cultural reasons. I travel for historical reasons. I sometimes travel for scenic reasons as well. Like you'll put a town in a, in a, you know, a valley somewhere in Yorkshire that is very pretty. So why not visit it? But yes, there is a tendency for me to visit places that other people may not have thought of going. Part of that is because one of my main reasons to travel is history and it just happens that a lot of places with some interesting history, and I use the word interesting quite interestingly, uh, <laughs> are places that are off the beaten track, as they say, or at least off the beaten track for tourists like me. Um, I mean, one of the countries that I've visited that people from Britain generally don't visit is Bangladesh. Now, Bangladesh is certainly not off the beaten track. It's one of the most populous countries in the world and gets a horrendously large number of visitors. It's just that those visitors don't tend to come from the UK. Mm. Or they, don't, they just don't tend to be, you know, middle class white people from the UK anyway. OK, so and, some of the places that you visit are quite scary then. Um, um, what's, what's the scariest <laughs> place you've been to? I, I had a gun pointed at me in Palestine. Um, which was kind of my own fault in a way, because I was, um, the thing about Palestine is that you've got Israeli settlers and Palestinian residents often quite far away from each other to stop them from fighting. But in the town of Hebron, they're literally on top of each other. And there's a bit of the town of Hebron that's literally closed off so that no one's allowed to walk down it. And like a sort of no man's land between yeah. the places. Yes, very much no man's land between places. And I did not know this at the time. So I <laughs> blase just walked down the street and ended up with a UN soldier going, Oi, stop doing that. <laughs> and, and pointed a gun at me, which is, you know, a nice well. That does sound quite scary. <laughs> yes, yes. I mean, the thing is, as well, is I know they would have shot me if I'd have carried on. Um, <laughs> just because, I mean, 
they didn't know who I was. I could have been anyone. Um, so that that's that sort of thing hasn't put you off going to places like that then. Uh, no, uh, and two and a half years later, I ended up in Burkina Faso, which on my visit had just had a revolution three weeks earlier, uh, and they'd only just opened the borders. So that's the sort of place that I go to, and, and it's just had a revolution now, actually. It's just had a, a, a military coup in it, so, you know. Oh, so you're planning on going back then, are you? <laughs> <laughs> it was actually, a, I mean, Burkina Faso is a great example of this because it's a country that's not on pretty much anybody's radar certainly in britain um mm. a lot of people in britain probably don't even know where it is never mind anything about it yes. um, so but that doesn't mean that it's not a place to visit because you know everywhere is interesting and i found burkina faso are actually quite a very lovely and pleasant place to go i'm not sure i'd go at the moment but it's, it's a very lovely and pleasant place and more people should explore places that they're not familiar with. I mean, that that is a big sort of thing with your blog, isn't it? Visiting the places that are off the map that people sort of haven't heard of. So yeah. how do you decide where you're going? This is not a question that is on the list. I'm just interested. <laughs> well, it's, it's a very good question. Um, there's a number of reasons, but they're usually either because there's things in the past that have happened there that I have a great interest in. So one of the places I visited is Timor-Leste. And I visited there because uh, it's a small island connected to Indonesia. And mm. I went there because when I was at university, it was, you know, how students have often have this. Um, there's always a cause that they're fighting for um, and, you know, producing publicity letters and raising money to fund. When I was at university, the one that they were doing most of was uh timor leste independence uh oh, because so you, you just thought oh i haven't heard of that i must go and visit well essentially it was more a case of when i was at university it was the big um student fighting call so it stuck in my mind so yeah. when i was traveling around the world 20 years later i thought you know what now it's all settled down and it has become an independent country i might as well visit it to see what you know what all the fuss was about Mm. So you've got a situation where something was in my head and I thought, well, I've heard of it now. It sounds quite interesting and I, I'm connected with the history of it. So let's let's see what it was all about. Let's learn a lot more about it. And I do that for a lot of places. So there's quite a few places I've been to that either I've heard about on, you know, sort of news reports when I was growing up or I've read about them on maps when I was growing up or they're places that I feel I should know more about we're not taught about them. Like, for example, West Africa. We're not taught anything about West Africa. Mm. Um, we know nothing about it whatsoever, which is, considering what we've done there, quite interesting. Um, I so, find that actually we don't seem to know much about Africa as a continent. We seem to think of it as a homogenous sort of place rather than a great many countries that are in a block yeah. together. <laughs> yes, yes. There's a, there's a, I think it's 54. I mean, it depends on where mm. you draw the boundaries, but... Uh, Yes, there's a lot of countries in Africa and they're all very, very different from each other. Um, and most of them have borders that, shall we say, do not represent the reality of the people that live there. Mm -hmm. I have issues with borders. Um, I, I yeah. feel like in future we could do an entire space about borders. So maybe we won't drill down too deeply into them today. I've, um, done, I've done two entire podcasts about borders. So, yes. Yes. Um, 
that would work rather well. Um, I forgot to ask you a second ago, I meant to ask you near the beginning, um, you write a travel blog where you write about all of your travels and your adventures and things that you're exploring. How long does it take you to write your blog? I can write it if I'm feeling in the mood and I'm inspired and I know what I'm doing, I can probably write it. Uh, and this is not encountering any of the admin. I could write it in a couple of hours, maybe four or five hours. If I'm not feeling in the mood, there are posts that I have not yet finished that I started writing. Well, one of them's dating from about 2017, um, which I've done two thirds of. It's on Detroit. But one of them's from about 2013 um, that I still haven't written. Well, I've, I haven't finished writing. I've done half of it. And that's on uh, Middlesbrough and Saltburn-on-Sea in the northeast of England. Uh, at some is point, that, I'm is that because you're not very inspired by the destination or you're not quite sure what you want to write about there or you just got bored of it? You've never been to Middlesbrough, have you? Um, <laughs> I have not. <laughs> actually, um, it's more a case of, uh, and this comes, this is another aspect to travel blogging and travel writing that possibly isn't as well known. It only takes me a few hours to write the blog and to write the post. It takes me almost as long again to edit the pictures, to well, to find the pictures that I want to use to um, illustrate the blog, to edit the pictures, and then to write the captions for them. And what happened with my Middlesbrough blog is that I the pictures that I took weren't that good, so I wasn't inspired to illustrate them. And I always meant to go back and haven't managed it yet. Were those pictures um, not very good technically or were not very good because when you're visiting the place, you're not really thinking about your blog? Uh, well, it's a bit of both. Um, but in the, obviously, this was back in 2013, so I wasn't as good at um, visualising how to take a good picture. And mm. the camera I was using wasn't as good as the cameras that are around now so i know i could redo a lot of the pictures also things have changed up there i imagine so yes um, um but yes so you touched on there that um you weren't as good at taking pictures and things then i'm guessing that you feel more confident about that now that you've had a lot more practice um have yes. you gained confidence from writing about your travels just in general um i think so I mean, one of the things about the way I travel and the places I travel is that I'm very much on my own most of the time, which forces me to have the confidence. And then if I'm writing about a place that no one, well, that fewer people really know about, then I feel like I can be more, honest is possibly the wrong word here. I, I feel like I can be more sort of genuine about how I'm feeling and genuine about what the place is like because I don't have anything to compare it to. Um, the other thing about the way I write and the, the, the blogs that I do and the podcasts that I do is that they're very much geographically centred, but they're about the history, they're about the culture, they're about the environment, they're about the society. I don't write posts like um, 13 Cute Cafes in Paris, and I don't because I simply can't be mithered with the admin of upkeeping them. Yes, I'd imagine so, that things like cafes changing ownership often and things like that changing their menus often, it must be quite difficult to sort of keep that information current if that's the sort of post that you're doing. Absolutely. Whereas if you're writing 
a blog post and you're saying that there's a ruined castle in a field, that ruined castle has been a ruined castle since what, maybe like 1647. There's a fair chance that no matter when I write my blog, that ruined castle will still be a ruined castle. And also actual historical events. It's like, okay, so there was a battle here in, you know, 1644. There will always have been a battle here in 1644. So, you know, I can still write about it. Yeah. What, what I write is not time dependent, but also what I write is not situational dependent as well. Nothing will change with the way I write because I'm writing about what was and I'm writing about, you know, the society. Yeah, more focused on yeah. cultural things rather than touristy things, really. I suppose yes. that that is kind of the difference between travel and tourism in a way. Possibly, although that's that's a that's a a discussion for a, a a very different space i suspect there's arguments around on travel twitter about that very subject about what is what is tourism what is oh no the kind of worms i wasn't aware of <laughs> um i mean the thing is as well you can be a tourist in your own city yes i mean that's one of the things that you do as well isn't it where you try and travel to local places but with the mindset of a traveler yes i mean every as I say, everywhere is interesting. And the thing is, when you live in a place, you may not know what's on your own doorstep because mm -hmm. you just don't think of it because you live there. So why would you think of it? Yes. Um, so people go all the way around the world to look at a beautiful waterfall, but there might be one 20 miles away. Yeah. I mean, when you visited local to me, you went and took pictures of concrete cows that I don't even really notice when I walk past them. <laughs> yes. Well, that's because they're unusual. <laughs> And it's, it's also famous. That's what that's what your area is famous for. It's famous for concrete cows. <laughs> it's quite the claim to fame, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, the, the, the town I lived in for 15 years has statues of cricketers in it. Now, you're not necessarily going to go all the way around the world to look at statues of cricketers. But yeah. if you happen to be in the area, and especially if you live in the area, it's a cultural representation of what that area is famous for. Yes. Well, I would say that in the UK, to the rest of the world, we're pretty famous as being tea drinkers. Okay, and one of the questions that we've been sent in from St Mary's um, asks, um, well, it says, when my nana travels, she brings her tea bags with her. What food or drinks do you always take with you when you travel? And that kind of does also tie into another question from St Mary's, which was, um, is there anything that you always carry when you're travelling? This is where I make the admission that I don't actually like tea. Uh, I, find, <laughs> I find it boring. Uh, I mean, I, I, I will have like Arabic mint tea that's made with like, you know, an entire mint bush and about three tons of sugar. Um, that, that's about that's the only tea I drink. Um, one of my Twitter friends actually does carry tea bags with her because she is very British and she believes that you can't get decent tea outside of the UK. Um, My nana lived in America for a while, and when I went to visit her, she asked that I brought some PG tips and some Marmite. <laughs> Marmite's another good one. You, you can't get, I mean, you can get Vegemite, I guess. Yeah, but it's not the same, is it? <laughs> don't, don't, don't say things like that. You'll have the entire... My entire Australian Twitter friends on your back. You <laughs> I didn't say it was worse. I just said it's not the same. <laughs> Um, I did over Marmite. <laughs> <laughs> no, so is there I, anything that's not a food thing that you always carry with you when you're traveling? I was going to say I, I don't carry food things with me, partly because I travel so light, so I only ever travel with 
basically what fits on hand luggage on an aeroplane. So I'm not in a position to take food and drink with me particularly. And also when I'm abroad, I like to eat the local food. Mm. So uh, there's nothing I really would take with me. I mean, if I could, I'd take an entire Greg's store with me because they're, <laughs> they, they're all, but failing that, I, I just eat what's there. Um, do I take me as not being a real Brit now because I don't like tea and I've never been to Greg's? <laughs> yeah, I don't understand how you could never have been to Greg's. Their vegan sausage rolls are actually bloody good. Uh, better they're, on than my list. they're on my list of things to yeah. do. <laughs> yeah. um, there are things that I do take with me all the time. Um, as I say, I only ever travel with hand luggage, but in that hand luggage is always a notebook and a pen because I'll always be doodling and I'll always be writing stuff. But I also take two soft toys with me, a small teddy bear type thing that's about the size of the palm of my hand and a slightly larger, I think he's a dog. And this is baby Ian and Dave, and they are very, very naughty. If there is a sign saying, do not climb on this wall, they will climb on the wall. Uh, the, most of the pictures I have of baby Ian and Dave are, they are either staring at or have their faces in beer and cake. <laughs> I'm sure Can't you help them out with finishing those off. Yes. Can't take <laughs> them anywhere. That's the problem. And um, where would you like to go next? Have you thought about that yet? Uh, I have a number of places in my mind. When I went on my interrail trip in autumn 2019 around Europe, I was basically ticking off a lot of places that I felt I ought to go. And when I was traveling, I realized that I actually had rather go to places for specific reasons rather than just because they're there. And that also means that I don't generally go to like big tourist attractions because, I mean, some of them are famous for a reason, but some of them are just famous for being famous. So with that in mind and with my lesser place traveled kind of hat on, there's a couple. One of them is Bolivia. I've been trying to get to Bolivia since about 2012, and I've still never managed it. Um, but South America itself, just it's the only country I've been there is Chile. And I only went there for about 11 days. So most of South America is a completely blank space to me. Yeah. Um, but if the, the history of it fascinates me and it just I, th I think I'd I think I'd like it. I think I'd fit in well in South America. Uh, I don't I can't explain why. I just think it is the continent that I think I should be connecting to more than anything else. It does, for my own benefit, require me learning a bit of Spanish, which I'm useless at foreign languages um, because my brain doesn't work quickly enough and I'm too socially anxious to you know, speak it just in case mm. I get things wrong. And I don't want to get things wrong. Um, but leaving that aside, it does South, South America and Bolivia in particular do, do impress on me. Uh, a couple of other countries I want to visit. I want to visit Pakistan because, yeah, I mean, the thing with Pakistan is obviously you've got the history there. Uh, you've got the culture there and the food. The food is fabulous. And it's also it's also going to be interesting because I've been to Nepal and I've been to Bangladesh and I've been to Sri Lanka. Um, so Pakistan is just in a similar area, but different. Again, it's comparing and contrasting. One day I'll go to Ooh. India. Not yet. Uh, and the other. How do you keep track of the places that you've been? Like, do you have one of those maps where you scratch off the country that you've been to? Do you keep a list or do you just try and remember and find yourself in a place and go, oh, no, I've been here already? <laughs> I actually have two scratch off maps, but I've not used them. Um, 
Yes. No, I remember. I re- pretty much remember everywhere I've been. I don't necessarily mm. remember the details of it, but I remember having been there. So, I, I, I also I take a lot of pictures. There have been there are days when I'm traveling where I've, I take like 120, 130 pictures in the day. So a lot I of that. And the blog works as a sort of diary for that as well. And that's another reason why I, I do it. It's so that I've got if I write it there and then which rarely happens, but certainly having taken lots of pictures, it means that I can remember it so that when I get old, I've got something to look back on so I don't have to rely on my memory all the time. Um, and then we all get to enjoy it as well. Indeed, indeed. I mean, that's the thing. I go to these places so you don't have to. And <laughs> I, I, a lot of people either won't or can't go to some of the places that I go to. So essentially I'm... I'm allowing them to travel vicariously through my words and through my pictures and through my yeah. voice. I so, enjoy your, your blogs and pods for that reason. Thank you. But it's like another country on my list is uh, Kiribati, which is a group of islands in the South Pacific that's horrendously difficult to get to. And they're like, whenever people think of the South Pacific, they think of places like Fiji, they think of places like French Polynesia, and they're quite pretty. Um, Kiribati is more functional than aesthetic and that is a very very nice way of saying ugly I'm I'm not saying that they're ugly I'm not (laughs) saying that at all what I am saying is that if people are going to the South Pacific they're more likely to go to French Polynesia yeah Um, because French Polynesia has the has the picture perfect atolls and the 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 beaches and and more people have heard of it hmm but uh, I, w- I want to go to Kiribati. Partly I want to go to Kiribati because it's in Micronesia. And the South Pacific has three island groups. It's got Micronesia, Melanesia and Polynesia. And I've been to at least one country and the other two groups. So, again, it's a, it's a compare and contrast thing. Because one of the things about travel is that it's interesting in, in the way that you can start doing that. You can start going, OK, so this reminds me of this place. But equally, it's unique for this reason. Um, and I do that even in Britain as well. So I've been to... Um, the Outer Hebrides, and I've been to Orkney, and mm. we've got two island groups off the coast of Scotland that are quite similar, but also very, very different in a number of ways. And it's just fascinating to make those comparisons. Um, you touched briefly a second ago on social anxiety that you're forced to confront because you travel alone. Yes. Um, one <laughs> of the questions here is um how does traveling make you feel but i want to open that up a bit and ask you as well like how do you deal with things like shyness and social anxiety when you are far from home it's very much depending on my mood so sometimes i will figure okay so i'm alone in this country where i don't speak the language don't understand the culture i've spent a lot of money to get here and there's a lot of fascinating things to do here this is why i'm here i have to force myself out there and have those conversations and make sure things happen because that's why I'm here and I'm going to enjoy it damn it Uh, sometimes it doesn't work like that and there have been times when I've literally come home because I have not been able to face the environment because for one reason or another I've got so many things going on in my head that I just can't I don't have the spoons for it So there's a, there's a couple of places that I need to go back to because my experience there was awful. But my experience there was awful because of my own mental state, not because of anything that happened in the country. 
I see. Um, I was just about to ask you if those are places that you would consider going back to, or do you then find yourself intimidated by those places and not want to return again? I find myself intimidated by most places. Um, one of the worst feelings in the world that I have is if I'm flying, and this happens on a more regular than you might expect, when I'm flying into a country and that I've never been before, then I know that I'm not going to speak the language and I know I'm going to be obviously standing out as a, you know, the, the tourist. And it's that, we're going to land in 10 minutes announcement. That's the scariest bit because then I know it's about to happen. I, I get round it by, um, I mean, one of my favourite phrases is knowledge is power. And mm. I get around it by doing things like oh, beforehand, making sure I know exactly how to get out of the airport, making sure that I know how to get from, say, the airport to the city centre, making sure I know how to, if it's a bus, where to buy the ticket from, how much the bus costs. Um, does I, Do I have to pay by exact money? Do I have to buy the ticket in advance? Where, If I buy the ticket in advance, where do I buy it from? Literally, I have you know downloaded maps of airports before now so that I can plot my route. That sounds very um, good to me. Yeah. Uh, I, don't, I mean, even if I'm going somewhere fairly local to me, I will have a look on Google Maps, see exactly where I'm going to park, see which way I need to walk from there to reduce anxiety. So that makes perfect sense to me. Yeah. One of the troubles I have is that a lot of the places I go aren't on Google Street View. Yes. <laughs> that, that's, that must be quite a strange concept for some of the younger listeners in this, that there are places that are not on Google Maps at all. <laughs> When I first started travelling, um, the very first, we'll, we'll ignore the, the Irish adventure, the very first um, place I went to effectively on my own was I took trains across Europe in 1994 before the internet, mm. before mobile phones. So I was literally on my own going across Europe at the age of 19 with almost no money uh, and no real knowledge of what on earth I was doing, or, you know, couldn't speak the language. Uh, no, you know. That seems very brave to me. That is something that I think I would be too anxious to do. Weirdly, I'm not sure. Looking back, I don't know how I did it. <laughs> Maybe you'll be still thinking that about adventures that you're having today in 20 years' time. Uh, quite possibly. Um, I don't know if I'm feeling more socially anxious than I was then, or maybe I was just too young to care um mm. but certainly I, I do look back on i mean uh, i was visiting a pen pal that i'd only been writing to for about three months i shall um yeah I, I was a pen pal someone that you write to and they write back uh very similar to sort of like you'd have friends on discord except that it doesn't take it takes about you know three weeks between each message yeah um Usually somebody that you haven't met in a different country would be your pen pal. I, I, I've met, I don't think I've met any of the people I know on Discord. So, yeah, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah, and half of them live in a different country. Um, yes. So imagine Discord, but it takes three weeks between messages. That's a pen pal. Um, <laughs> um, so, yeah, but at the time, I, like, I, I'd, only been, I'd only written her about three letters before and they decided to go across Europe to visit her. And she was living in Yugoslavia, which at the time was at war. <laughs> so you've never actually shied away from visiting war zones and places with conflict and things like that. You've always well, just gone she, for it. 
she lives in Belgrade. Belgrade wasn't technically at war at the time. The war was like 100 miles west. But it was interesting to get the train from Hungary and see lots of UN uh, branded wagons mm-hmm. uh, by the rail side. It was like, over there, there's a bit of fighting that the UN are going to are trying to stop. And it's like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Much, despite what my mother thinks, I have never been to an active war zone. I'm quite surprised by that, actually. <laughs> like, I would have <laughs> thought that it would be the sort of thing that you might wander into by accident. <laughs> I've, I've, I've wandered into places by accident, but they haven't been war zones. What sort of um, places have you wandered into? I wandered into Burkina Faso by accident because the border didn't exist. Um, <laughs> I was in Ghana. I wanted to go to Burkina Faso. Don't get me wrong. The, the whole point was to cross the border. It's just I was intending to cross it legally uh, and I didn't. So the, the, it was. imagine a small village uh, on the very edge of Ghana and no signposts. So I was sort of saying to the locals, well, where's where's the border? Where's Burkina Faso? Oh, just go that way, follow the motor, follow the, the motorbikes, because everyone rides a, a motorbike or a, like a motor scooter over there. Um, so I did. I followed the motor scooters. Turns out motor scooters driven by locals don't follow strict border controls. They just cross. <laughs> uh, and the only border post was at the road. And the motor scooters were on this sort of path through the middle of the the landscape and um seven kilometers later i'm a board i'm at a police station in burkina faso going where's the border seven kilometers that way ah bearing in mind <laughs> that it was like two o'clock in the afternoon at about 35 degrees celsius uh, i didn't really <laughs> fancy the idea of walking back but i managed to get hitch a lift off a, a passing moto driver and the, one of the scariest things in the world, you asked earlier about scary things, crossing a border illegally isn't scary if you don't know you're doing it. <laughs> crossing the border illegally on the way back when you know exactly what you're doing, that's the scary bit. Um, since since um, you've been talking about illegally crossing borders and baby Ian and Dave getting into all of the beer, probably a don't good time to remind people that you are Hashtag not a role model. <laughs> I, I, am, I am not a role model. Do not try this at home. I go to these places so you don't have to. I do these things so you don't have to. Um. <laughs> of all the places that you have visited, is there anywhere that you'd like to go back to? Um. Yes. Yes. I mean, I really like Benin in West Africa because it's one of those countries that should be a lot more popular than it is. Would you say that that's your favourite place? It's one of them. I've also got a question here that says, what's your favourite place and why do you like it? So they kind of tie in together. Yeah. I don't really have favourite places, but I certainly have places that I like. So as I say, Benin has history, it has culture, it has scenery, and it has really good food. It's the home of two things that are really culturally interesting. One of them is an African kingdom of Dahomey. And the other one is it's the home of voodoo. Oh, very cool. Yes, so I, I have I have partaken in a couple of voodoo ceremonies and they're very interesting. And I mean, they're not great if you're vegetarian. Yes, I've seen the pictures. Um, you can see the pictures on the Barefoot Backpackers blog as well if you're interested in seeing what real voodoo looks like. <laughs> yeah, I, it's actually quite funny. We, we have this impression of voodoo as being this sort of really strange religion about dead people. But actually... 
when I was speaking to the voodoo priest in Benin, what he said was that the vast majority of people go to a voodoo ceremony to either pass an exam, as in, you know, I need I need help passing an exam. Can you give me the the blessing of the spirits to pass the exam, mm. or for uh, love life? Um, you know, I, I'm single and I need a, a partner. Uh, can you. you bless me to get a partner? Um, and fertility as well. <laughs> so some of the totems in your pictures make it very clear that fertility is quite a big part of uh, the religion. Yes. <laughs> I mean, that's the, same, that's the same with most religions. Most religions are um, people want blessing for good luck or for good family. It, it's kind of worldwide. They're just what people do. Um, it's just that voodoo requires the um, use of animal bones to do it, and mm. some very strong spirits, um, as in the ghostly kind. Um, to protect yourself from evil ghostly spirits, you'd better take this bottle and drink the stuff that's in it, which is itself a pretty strong spirit. <laughs> I said that's why we call them spirits. That makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> No. Yes, so Benin Benin's one of the most interesting countries I've been to. Um, and Albania. you think you'd like to go there again? Yes, yeah. I mean, I spent 12 days in it, so I saw a lot of it. But there's still there's things that, I mean, obviously things change over time as well. So, But there's, there's things I didn't see in Benin that I want to see again. Um, Albania is a really nice country. Um, very strange history. Very Well, mo very strange modern history anyway. It was cut off from the rest of Europe for about 40 years. And there's some very interesting remains there, very interesting sort of modern ruins. Uh, it's also a very picturesque country. You might not think it, you might think of it, but it's got some actually gorgeous mountains and forests in it. Uh, and Belgium, I really like Belgium because I do not understand that country. And that's why you like it. <laughs> it's a country that basically consists of beer, chocolate, waffles, chips, and the strange sense that two halves of it don't actually like each other, but don't want to split because it just makes make things more administratively awkward. Um, you like the architecture there as well, apparently. Yes. Oh, yes, very much so. Um, I've like Bruges for that reason. Yes. Yes, there's a couple of very, I mean, there's a lot of very nice. I don't think I've come across a bad Belgian town. Mm-hmm. Where else? Yeah, I mean, there's there's lots. I mean, there's lots. I've I've not been to a bad place. That's not strictly true, but I've not. Been say, you've been to Luton. <laughs> I've been to Luton. I have been to Luton. I will go back to Luton, but Luton is the. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's a, yeah. I should have said this earlier as well. You talked about scary places. Luton is the only place I've ever actually been scared for my life. <laughs> like, despite having had a gun pointed at you in. <laughs> In, in, in Palestine. Palestine. Yes. Yes. <laughs> right. <laughs> maybe maybe we won't go too deeply into that. Um, yeah. I mean, I would say if the, if the Luton Tourist Board want me to advertise their services, then I'm quite willing to do that because I believe that everywhere is interesting and everywhere has a reason to be and everywhere is special. Luton yeah. doesn't have a tourist board. It doesn't have a tourist board. I'm not really surprised. Why would you come to Luton, really? No offence, Luton. <laughs> <laughs> you grew up in Luton, didn't you? I did. I'm allowed. It's fine. <laughs> um, now, you are, of course, the barefoot backpacker, and we haven't really touched on that yet. But um, one of the 
questions from St. Mary's asks, why do you not wear shoes and have you ever cut your feet? I tend not to wear shoes because I don't like shoes. My feet get too hot if they're too enclosed. and I'm quite a cold weather animal, so I don't like feeling too hot. It makes me uncomfortable. And if I'm uncomfortable, then I'm more stressed. If I'm more stressed, I'm more anxious. So being barefoot allows me to be more relaxed and allows me to be more chill. Mm -hmm. um, I will. I mean, I often wear sandals and I have minimalist type shoes um, as well. But I don't like closed shoes and I will try not to wear them wherever possible. Sometimes I have to. So sometimes I'll go to a place and uh, like I went to CERN in Geneva, the um, the, uh, the Collider. Collider. That, yeah, that place. I was trying to think. I can't remember what CERN stands for. I know it's something in French. But yes, the, the Large Hadron Collider place. Uh, mm -hmm. And the instructions there say uh, you must wear closed shoes. And it's Did the you same... have to buy some especially? Because even in buy... winter, you're a sandals yeah. person, aren't you? <laughs> I, I had to buy some especially from a, a supermarket in France um, where I was. I was in Toulon on the south of France, and I had to go into a supermarket and specifically buy some like knockoff Converse for 20 quid or something, um, which I've worn about three times, one of which was at CERN. Another place where I, I was told I have to wear closed shoes was Chernobyl. Um, and I, when I was in Chernobyl, I realised why I had to wear closed shoes, because, you know, full of abandoned buildings with lots of broken glass. I was going to say, so that's not a, like a radiation thing. No, Surely shoes can't save you from that. <laughs> no, no, it's not a radiation thing. It's simply a, 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 a rubble thing. It's, it's a, yeah. there's, a lot, there's a lot of broken glass and what have you here. So, you know, you might want to protect yourself as much as possible. Um, that's a good idea. Have you ever injured your feet from barefooting? I got a piece of glass stuck in it in Antwerp after 10 days of barefooting through Belgium and Netherlands, uh, including attending the entirety of a travel blogger conference. And uh, it was awkward because uh, I couldn't walk on it, not because it hurt, because it didn't hurt. It was just because it was in the way and I couldn't put my foot down properly. So I mm. had to stagger over to a seat by a, a, a cafe or pub and pull it out. And uh, I, I felt kind of. Yeah, that's what happens when you're barefoot, I guess. Um, I suppose if you're used to barefooting, you would tend to, if you're going far from civilization, carry a first aid kit for that reason. Because obviously, yes. if you're in the middle of nowhere and you damage your feet, you could end up in quite serious trouble. Yes, yeah. I mean, even in Britain, I'll carry a pair of tweezers around with me. Because um, mm. I was like, I mean, I, I do parkrun every Saturday, and most of the time I do parkrun, I do it barefoot. Um, yeah. So I, I carry a pair of tweezers regardless. Um, but, yeah, in, in when I'm travelling abroad, I'll carry a small first aid kit with bandages and, and wrap and stuff like that. Um, but, yeah, the, the main problem I have with being barefoot, and this may come as a surprise, a lot of people say, well, isn't it cold? Um, and, yes, it is quite cold sometimes. But my main problem has been the opposite. It's been sometimes some of the places I've been, uh, I had this trouble in southern Africa where I – stepped off the plane and it was about i would say about 35 34 35 degrees and uh, i couldn't walk barefoot on the pavement because it was too hot yes yeah. i'd imagine that most people think about things like frost and snow but yeah walking walking on very hot ground can't be very good for you uh, no, it's not. That's another reason why I carry sandals with me. Um, and you get used to it and and 
Um, when I was in West Africa, I was around West Africa for five weeks. And by the by about the fourth week, I was barefoot most of the time. That was partly because my sandals had pretty much fallen apart by then. But that's not the point. Um, I was used by the by the time it got to that fourth week, I was used to the heat in West Africa. Yeah. But it still took a while to to get used to. Do. Um, the other the other issue I have is gravel. Um, there's a considerable number of gravel roads and gravel pavements, not just you know across the world, but also in Britain. Um, so I really really don't like gravel. I'd imagine mud's not very pleasant either. It must be quite squelchy and horrid. I personally don't like mud, um, but that's just because I don't I don't like the squishy feeling of mud, and I don't like the fact that I have no balance, so I will fall over a lot. Um, mm. But th I know people, other people who um, run or hike barefoot quite often, and they love mud. They love that squishy feeling, and I just don't. I think it's a yeah. texture. It's a texture. It doesn't seem to me either. Mm. Um, Although I suppose if you are doing a lot of sort of hiking and it's very muddy and you're wearing hiking boots, then your shoes can become really, really heavy. So being barefoot yeah. might be an advantage in that situation. Yeah, I mean, I did this a bit on the Pennine Way when I hiked across Great Britain um, after my toenail healed. But you don't need to know about that one. <laughs> um, it, it was quite muddy. And the advantage of being barefoot in those environments is that you don't have to spend ages cleaning your boots. All you mm. need to do is find a little stream and then, hey, presto, your foot's clean. Um, and dries quickly as well. Yes, yes, absolutely. Yes, it dries far quicker than a um, than a hiking boot. Again, I'm not necessarily recommending that you hike the Pennine Way barefoot. But um, but if you do want to find out more about what that's like, um, Barefoot Backpacker does have blog posts about that on barefoot-backpacker.com and on the podcast, which you can find linked on there as well. Yes. <laughs> Smooth, like it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and actually, yeah, I have come to the end of the questions sent from St. Mary's in Astley. Thank you guys very much for sending those in because it's given us a lot more structure to have this conversation with. That's been fantastic. Um, yes, thank you very much, Anna. I, I hope that I've answered your questions um informatively and well if you've got any more questions let me know and yeah so we're always happy to answer more questions on another space if you come up with some more from the back of that or like i said you can find out more on barefoot backpackers website about all of their adventures and travels awesome okay and um, thanks very much for answering my questions today that's been really interesting to listen to all of your adventures I hope thank we can you. do it again soon Thank you for allowing it. Uh, speak to you soon. Okay, thanks very much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, don't forget to leave a review on your podcast site of choice. Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure was written, presented, edited and produced in the Glasgow studio by the Barefoot Backpacker. Music in this episode was Walking Barefoot on Grass Bonus by Kai Engel, which is available by the Free Music Archive and used under the Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International License. Previous episodes will be available on your podcast service of choice, or alternatively on my website, barefoot-backpacker.com. If you want to contact me, I live on Twitter at rtwbarefoot, or you can email me at info at barefoot-backpacker.com. The podcast has a Facebook group at travel.tales.beyond.brochure and I have a Patreon for access to rare extra content. That's patreon.com slash travel tales beyond brochure pod. 
Until next time, have safe journeys. Bye for now. Thank you.